Welcome to Season 6 of the Writing Wall Podcast. We hope you find, follow, and enjoy the authors our show highlights. Please visit our Linktree URL on Twitter at The Writing Wall or Instagram at WritingsOnTheWall85 for platforms. And be sure to stop by our website for our monthly Watch Your Story newsletter featuring our author lineup, guest articles, and more. Because everyone has a story, The Writing Wall Podcast also spotlights all of our authors on Buy Me A Coffee. You can catch their season extras at www.buymeacoffee.com slash the writing wall and if you'd like to have your book featured during our season finale shout outs message us on social media what is your story and welcome to our season six opening episode. I'm your host, Stacey Hawks, and award-winning author Cheryl Gray Bostrom of Sugar Birds is with us this evening. Cheryl is a naturalist, photographer, poet, and author from rural Washington State. The author of two works of nonfiction, she's made her fiction debut with the publication of Sugar Birds in August 2021. Since its publication, Sugar Birds has won at least three awards, including the 2021 American Fiction Awards in Literary Fiction, General Fiction, and cross-genre fiction. Welcome, Cheryl, and thank you for being our season six opener. Hi, Stacy. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell listeners about yourself, where you're residing or from, and the genre you write. You know, I am in the far northwest corner of Washington State, a multi-generation Washingtonian. My family settled here in the mid and late 1800s. So we are up in rural Whatcom County, which is just a couple miles from the Canadian border. And yeah, it's just right smack between Salish Sea, Vancouver Island, Georgia Strait, head toward the Pacific Ocean, and then the Cascade Mountains. It's just gorgeous up here. So tell listeners a little bit about Sugar Birds. Well, Sugar Birds is a story about, uh, it's a dual narrators, but it opens with a 10-year-old Aggie whose dad has taught her the ways of the northern woods, which are the areas right around where I live. For years, her dad has taught her, his daughter Aggie, the ways of the northern woods. And she has a mom who's descending into manic depression. And so her dad has taught her how to sketch the nests of wild birds as an antidote to her sadness. But when her mom, who's very unpredictable, forbids her to climb the trees that give her the security and comfort that she's come to depend on, she accidentally lights a tragic fire and she she actually burns their house down and she thinks she's killed her parents. She lands her boat near an untamed forest and then hides among trees and creatures that she thinks are her only friends and she's determined to remain undiscovered. And so the second protagonist comes in, appeared, or within a, a day or so after Aggie has disappeared and Celia, who's 16-year-old, is fresh off the plane from Houston and her dad has tricked her into getting her up to her grandmother's because she's been hanging out with some people he doesn't like and he needs to leave for a job in South America. So she also plans to run. But when she joins the hunt for Aggie, she meets two irresistible young men who compel her to stay. And one is autistic and the other is dangerous. And it's really a story about emotional wilderness that both these girls are in. And it's illustrated through the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest, but it really illustrates how we can create our own isolation because of our guilt or our shame or our sorrow. And yet here's Aggie surrounded by this breathtaking natural world. And she's learned a lot of survival skills from her parents. And yeah, so the story takes off from there. 
So what inspired you to write Sugar Birds? What was the start of the story for you? Well, my inspiration was, was my granddaughter, birth of my granddaughter. I wrote a nonfiction previously and then took significant hiatus. I started a small business and did some other things and was grappling with some grief and I couldn't write a word. And so when I turned 60, I decided that I wanted to do what I had always hoped to do, which was to write fiction. So the birth of this granddaughter and wanting to d dedicate the book to her really was the impetus to dive in with both feet and to learn everything I could about the craft. And there are elements of my own upbringing and having a mother who had some mental illness issues um, and the ways that my sister in particular and I dealt with some of that sadness in the natural world. And my grandmother was very well versed in the flora and fauna of the Pacific Northwest and she trained us well. But we would climb trees like Aggie would to these perilous heights and ours weren't out of solace. It was pretty reckless behavior, but everything that's in this story could happen and has happened. And so it was really fun to be able to mine my own childhood, even though there's nothing similar in actual circumstances in it. It's always good to draw on personal experiences and then use it in writing because I feel like it makes it more real. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it helps you to layer it too, because people don't act in isolation from their motives or from their heart yearnings. And so when you have a visual for what's going on inside somebody's head, it's more meaningful. So as you mentioned, you've also authored some nonfiction books. What can you share with listeners about those? And had you always wanted to try your hand at writing fiction? I can remember a specific incident when I was, I don't know, a fourth or fifth grader telling my family that I wanted to write a novel and that I and I wrote a lot of short stories and more poetry when I was young, but had always loved the written word from the time I was actually a first grader. I've got some poems that I wrote when I was in first grade. But the two nonfiction books I wrote, first one was a devotional, and it stemmed from columns that I used to write for an organization called Women of Faith. And for about 20 years, they put on conferences all over the country. And at one point on their website, the weekly column that I wrote had for a million views. I'm not sure how that whole page download view thing works, but there were a million people reading those columns a month. And so that was all oh, right around the 99, 2000, 2001, and didn't even realize when the dot-com crash hit and, you know, and a lot of these fledgling on-site organizations had to restructure that I didn't even understand the meaning of the word platform. <laughs> so, you know, when that column went away at the dot-com crash, but then Thomas Nelson picked up those columns. And so about half of those columns appeared in the book, The View from Goose Ridge. And then I wrote the rest of the book as anecdotal devotional vignettes specifically for the book. That book just passed its 20-year anniversary and still sells. So that's a lot of fun. And then a couple of years after that, a friend and I wrote a book called Children at Promise. Dr. Tim Stewart, he was doing his doctoral research at the time on the perceived benefits of adversity. He was working with the Navajo tribe. And the premise was that relationship with a caring adult can help kids transform trauma and pain into character for those children. And he came into the book writing it from the standpoint of a child of privilege. And I came in as a child who would today be labeled an at-risk child. And both of us had not only significant relationships with God that helped trans 
transform our lives, but also with caring adults throughout our childhoods who sent us on paths that we wouldn't have likely discovered on our own. So two really different books. The second one's been used in graduate school psychology classes and for parenting. And then the first one is a devotional. But I wanted to be untethered from the, some of the constraints of nonfiction writing and be able to just to mine a lifetime of experiences where I've been every age up to where I am now and inculcate that into these characters that I've just grown to love. So everyone knows, authors know especially, that their first book usually takes a little while before they get it out there. But how long did it take you to write your first fictional piece? I started it in 2016 and actually decided to launch it off of a sketch that I wrote for an online writing class in New York City. From that sketch, students in the class and the instructors wrote to me privately and said, you know, you need to carry this story on. You need to let's see what happens here. And so that encouraged me because, of course, you know, when you're making that kind of a switch and I don't know if I can write fiction, I don't know, I'm just learning the craft. And uh, and so it gave me some eligibility. And then I started, you know, I just started learning everything I could. But it took me, okay, from 2016, by the end of 2018, I had a rough draft, but I thought it was YA. And I entered it in a couple of contests and it won both of them. And and so I thought, wow, you know, well, I can do this, I guess. But I, <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I started pitching it to agents and had a couple of editors look at it. And they all said that I needed to be writing adult fiction and that they didn't know what they'd do with it. And then the more I learned, the more I realized that this was just a chicken scratch baby. And so I sought out um, a couple of really good editors and who had worked on some big books. And I wrote to woman in New York. And I thought all she can do is turn me down. And she had worked on books like The Help and Lilac Girls. And she'd been in, in the industry for 30 years. And she said she had an opening in a couple of months. And she said, well, I'll work with you, Cheryl. The concept's mesmerizing to me of what you're going to, what you want to do here with Sugarbird. She says, but I'm not sure you'll want to work with me. And I said, well, why? And she said, because your uh, learning curve will be steep and your revisions arduous. <laughs> So I thought, well, I want to learn how to do this. I can go get an MFA. And I, I have a master's in English, but it wasn't in creative writing. Or I can learn from her. And so working with her really was like a one-on-one -on -one MFA. And it was harrowing. I'd get her, her edits back. And I would say, I can remember one spot we were driving across eastern Washington. And I looked at my husband and I said, I don't even have any idea what she's talking about. I don't even know what she's asking me to do. So I would say I gave that book, I don't know, 50 passes. I don't know how many times I went over that book, but every time I rewrote it, I was set free in another area to work with something new. And I knew when I got it, I knew when I got what she was talking about. And then that with that piece in place, it was just like the assembly of this puzzle of craft. And I just acquired a lot of things just through trial and error. And if 10,000 hours helps you to become good at something, I mean, I hit, I passed that a long time ago because I had so much to learn. You truly sound like me going through my first draft. It was like, oh my God, I know we did like a hundred passes. We, yeah. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. Well, and so you say a hundred and I mean, I'm hesitant to throw that number out there, but yeah. it might've been that many because, yeah. you know, you, you, you first, you're working it down just developmentally. You're, you know, trying to get your arc in place and land on the spots at your act points where they need to land to give cohesiveness to the author, you know, that the reader wants. And even, you know, and then, then working with dialogue and then scenes and point of view. And I mean, there's, it's endless. 
it's just endless, but it's so rewarding and so satisfying when it fits in and you have this alternate reality that is becoming so real that you can imagine yourself living it. Boy, it's just worth it. So fun. And then you get lonely after it's done because you're like, wait, what am I going to do with all my time now? Because <laughs> this is all I've done is look at this book. And it's, you know, it's like your mind just can't. I mean, you know, you're, you've been going and doing it for so long and you're just sitting there in a void. I mean, I was for a little while. I was like, wait, should I continue or... <laughs> Oh, Stacy, yes, it's just so unsettling. You have won and been nominated for several awards for Sugar Birds. What do you hope readers take away after having read it? Well, I think that um, first off, I want them to. I've been called by many a naturalist because of my love for and knowledge about the natural world. And I'm a big bird lover. I really believe that people can learn about the character of a loving God from the natural world who, who made it. And so that would be one thing, because I think we are made to be not just physical beings, but spiritual beings as well. And I'm a Christ follower, and that's been very meaningful to me, my relationship with him. And in the book, you know, there is wilderness that I've mentioned previously that, that the characters enter but for us to realize that some of our dark spots, some of our deep sadnesses, how we respond to them are choices. And we can wall ourselves off from those who would love us because we give up hope. And I think that this book, I pray that this book is really a book of hope because of the people who continue to pursue Aggie in the woods. Don't give up on her. And it's in those relationships that she eventually emerges from her wilderness. And for Celia, who is able to get out of her self-absorption and her anger at her dad and her desire, you know, her 16-year-old angsty stuff, to help this little girl, she grows too. And so I guess for readers to realize that, you know, there's a world beyond ourselves. And sometimes we can escape our dark places by looking for others to see, you know, who we can help. I have heard that from readers that they have been inspired to take a look at how they view their world to revisit that because of the book. So is there anything that you left out of Sugar Birds that you can share with listeners? No, <laughs> except that I, you know, I kept doors open for the sequel and I, I've written the sequel and I turned it in last week. So. so who is your favorite author and do you enjoy reading the same genre you write? Oh, yes. I look for nature novels, you know, meaningful nature novels that are layered, that are literary, that, um, that transport me to the sorts of life-giving landscapes that I love and then to watch people work out their stuff in the midst of them. I think setting is a character in both this novel and the next one that I've written, and it has a profound influence on the people that, that live in it. And my favorite author, I would say I really like old, an old author, Wallace Stegner, and I like Annie Dillard. And of course, I loved Crawdads, Delia Owens, simply because of the, you know, the rich natural world in that novel. I love that place has a has a character within these stories that you mostly see in the South and in Southern writing, but to see it come out in other places in North America from other authors is really fascinating. And I enjoy it immensely. 
But you know, you've, you hit on something there, Stacey, and that's that an awful lot, a number of novels of place come out of the South. And, you know, from if you're looking at American fiction and you get into some other areas of the country and it just doesn't have the same sense of relationship with the natural world, generally speaking. And I know there are exceptions, you know, and there, you know, I think about Willa Cather, her Midwestern stuff and John Steinbeck and some of his his settings in the far west and then in his travels with Charlie and and yet you have this intersect of place and people and time and the people are always profoundly affected by the other two. Absolutely our environments definitely play a big role not just for us but for our characters as well. So recently your book has been picked up by a publisher. What can you share with listeners and when will it be available again in other formats for them to pick up a copy for themselves? Well, this was pretty exciting because one of the agents that I first pitched Sugarbirds to and turned me down as Sugarbirds started garnering, you know, it's I think it's got over 2000 reviews now, but and then started winning industry awards cross market in both the general market and Christian market. She contacted me again and she said, do you want to just talk? Let's talk. So I said, sure, I'd love to talk. Because what I had done with Sugarbirds is it I became I became aware of the fact that it didn't make any difference that I had published twice with big traditional houses 20 years ago. It was nonfiction. Genre wasn't the same. I had let my platform go away. I had no platform. And I was really starting from scratch. There are so many books published every year and so many people trying to get the attention of a traditional publisher that for agents to take a risk, you know, on a fiction author, a new fiction author, a debut author, it is a big risk. And yet I had told her when I originally talked with her that I wanted to be able to write cross-market fiction, so not only for the Christian market, but for all of us who recognize, and oftentimes we recognize it through the natural world, that we have a spiritual component in our makeup, that we are created in a way that is both visible and invisible, and just to engage the discussion just to start that conversation and to see how does our spiritual nature, you know, the emotional, spiritual, the, our heart or our soul, how does that tie into the world around us and to the physical beings that we are? And how do the choices that we make impact that? And that's something that's relevant to every human being. And so I don't write traditional Christian fiction, but I write fiction with a spiritual element and so she started pitching the book. Tyndale House, which is a large Christian publisher, been around for a long time, was interested in the story. So I met with my agent and their director of fiction and then an acquisitions editor there. We just talked Sugarbirds, and they had read the book and liked the book. My goals for future books. And I pitched to them and wrote a proposal submitted through my agent and they liked the concept. Before too long, they sent me a contract for this next book, which is called Chalk Horse, and the next book after that, which I have a working title on, but it's due at the publisher a year from now. Recently, they also acquired Sugarbirds. It all worked out pretty fabulously without, you know, if anybody wants to talk to me about that, I'd be happy to chat with people. But because of the positioning of the book and the way that it arrived on the market as a general market work and then caught the attention 
of the Christian market. It became what I had hoped, but it's pretty exciting because now Sugarbirds is really off market right now, except for the audiobook, which I produced independently, and that is on the on market. Uh, the book's available through third-party sellers, but Tyndale will be bringing it back on, hopefully with an excerpt of from Chalk Horse in the back of it sometime within the next couple months. I is is what I understand. I'm not sure of the date on that, but spring of this year. And then the next book, Chalk Horse, will be available for pre-order in the fall, and then it comes out in May of 2024. So it's a long process, but you know, when you get into a publishing house that's they're going to comb over every word and package it beautifully and get all their marketing teams and all that in place, it takes time. So I'm okay with that. Well, congratulations on that great publication contract. I know everyone's looking forward to Sugar Bird's new release and your upcoming sequel. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking about publishing this year? I would say when you think the book is done, you probably have a hundred passes left. I know you don't <laughs> don't know me, but I I had always considered myself really a stickler editor, combing every word, and I had no idea what it took to get that book where it needed to be so that it could compete in the marketplace. And so I would say revise, 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 learn everything you can, you know, dive into it. You hear about writing talent and people will say, well, I just don't have the gift. I think it's, you know, there it's maybe 10% of that and the rest of it's hard work, but it's so worth it. It's just so joyful to be able to communicate with a reader and to hear that your work somehow touched a person person's heart in ways that made their life better, you know, or to be able to tell your story in a way that you've never told it before, if you're a memoirist or you're writing a biography or whatever. But I also think that writing process, the writing process helps you know your own story. Even if you're writing fiction, as you assemble and assimilate memories and characters and people you've known and forge them into a new story that may really have nothing to do with you, there's still something that happens inside of you that's pretty magic and pretty wonderful. And so I can't think of anything more rewarding than doing this. So if you're, and the main thing is just getting your rear end in the chair and just getting rid of the inner critic, put her in a closet and don't listen to her and just start to write and you can revise later. So where can listeners and followers find you and your books? Well, right now they can get Sugarbird's audiobook. It's on, I think, over 60 platforms. You would just, if you wanted to listen to the audiobook. And it's read by uh, narrator Jane Entwistle, who's a pretty wonderful narrator. The book is available through third party sellers on Amazon. But if you just jot the title down somewhere, in a couple of months, you'll be able to get the ebook and you'll be able to get the new copy under the Tyndale imprint. You can contact me at Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, at CherylBostrom.com. And my last name is B-O-S-T-R-O-M. And I will always write back and I'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for me, if you're just starting the writing journey or if you are well into it and you just want to even just talk about something like contest entries or point of view, I'd be delighted to to connect with you. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, again, for being our season six opener. We really appreciate it. And we encourage everyone to check you out on social media and keep an eye out for Sugar Bird's next release. Thank you, Stacey. Good to be here. 
Be sure to check out Sugarbirds and Cheryl Gray Bostrom across social media and visit her website. You can also check out her season six exclusive extra on our Buy Me a Coffee page, buymeacoffee.com forward slash the writing wall. Tune in next Saturday, February the 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a very special guest, Terry M. Brown. She will be back to talk with us about her latest book titled An Enemy Like Me. Because we all have a story, the Writing Wall podcast wants to hear yours. What is your story? Lovers of romance and rock and roll can find author Melina Druga's new book, Sexual Awakening, on Amazon February the 14th. The series follows Cassandra from her teen years into her 40s as she navigates relationships, both romantic and platonic, all with music playing a prominent role. Follow Melina on social media and visit her website, melinadruga.com, for more. Welcome to our first Going Local segment of 2023. For first-time listeners of the podcast, we hope you'll find some meaningful and very fun, even educational aspects within our Going Local segments. These segments highlight local authors, writers, and even topics that have come across my local feed on social media. We also like to cover topics that matter to indie writers and authors like promotion. Speaking of, if you have not yet joined the world of book talk or TikTok, let me just say how different and interesting it is from that of Twitter and Instagram. Videos and reels abound on the platform, full of information and with a plethora of authors willing to share the spotlight to help you highlight your book or books. However, there are some, as on other platforms, who dislike the idea of promoting all together. Promotion is hard. It's time consuming. It can be overwhelming and even exhausting. However, promoting your own book, your story that you worked and labored tirelessly to bring to publication should never be called toxic. The definition of toxic per the dictionary is acting as or having the effect of a poison. If at any time what we're doing while promoting our books becomes toxic, I for one will definitely step back and re-examine what it is I wanted for my books, what my ultimate goal or goals were, and then reconsider being a part of any platforms. Some professional advice of do's and don'ts for dealing with a toxic environment include sticking to reality, don't even join, understand your feelings, talk to someone about your feelings, prioritize your needs, walk away, or stay neutral. Decide that you'll advertise your book every now and then or set up a schedule of promotion that's good and healthy for you. Sometimes even learning to say the word no can make a big difference. Not only does it set boundaries, but it can give you time to make decisions and set up that promotional schedule that works for you. If you're able, hire a professional promotion team. They can also be beneficial and can take a lot of stress off of you. But if not, there are even some great folks out there in the writing communities of Twitter and Instagram who will give you a shout out, create a few promotional materials, and even share your information if you just ask. 
As indie authors, it's important to remember that we are not alone in this business. We all strive for the same thing, to get our stories out there, to share them with the world. And don't let the stress and exhaustion and the inability to be kind to your fellow authors overshadow all the work that you've done. After all, we all have a story and I enjoy hearing yours. Anytime I purchase a book, I always review, and if I really enjoy reading your work, rest assured it may be shared here on this podcast with my listeners and followers. Of course, I will do so with permission from the author or authors first. Please like, follow, and share this information with other writers, and if you ever need a writer's lift, visit me on social media. Thank you all again for being here for this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and learning more about the stories you weave.